finally opening statements from both sides in the Michael Jackson case. And from Judge Rodney Melville, the 10-count child molestation and conspiracy indictment read with a list of 28 alleged overt acts, some involving booze and sex graphically described. This is Dan Abrams on MSNBC. Then, DA Tom Snedden came out swinging, saying Jackson exposed the teenage boy in this case to, quote, strange sexual behavior. Snedden described what the accuser's little brother would describe. Let me warn you, this is graphic. Quote, how on other occasions he happened upon seeing Michael Jackson masturbating himself with one hand while Jackson's other hand was inserted into the underpants of his brother. The private world of Michael Jackson reveals that instead of bedtime discussions and children's books and discussions of Peter Pan, that this 44-year-old man is sharing his, his collection of sexually explicit magazines, that he's talking to the accuser about masturbation, he's telling him it's normal and that it's okay and everyone does it, that each of these acts is calculate, calculated to desensitize the boy, to change his moral antenna, and to add the trust and the admiration of an adult voice to the boy's conduct to convince him what was being done was all right in the adult world and it worked. It seems it's really going to come down to the credibility of this boy and his brother because no one else witnessed the molestation. From Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio, this is Telephone Stories. Episode 10, Credibility Issues. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Oh, hey, Bubba. Omar. Sorry I missed your call. I was taking a break to watch The Bachelorette with Jenna. <laughs> Is that that um, that reality dating show? Is that the thing? Oh, is that is that the reality <laughs> dating show? As you call it? Uh, oh, I was just I'm just saying it sounds a little like lowbrow for you, right? Yeah, fancy pants. Well, I'm wading through this trial. You know, it's 140 witnesses. There's more than 700 pieces of evidence, and I did the math for the 65 days of trial. The transcripts are over 13,000 goddamn pages. Holy shit, man. Well, no, no wonder you're watching The uh, Bachelorette or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got to figure out if Hannah's ever going to see that Luke P's a total douchebag and manipulating her and all the other male contestants. 
All right. Well, good for you. That's great. Yeah. I know you think The Bachelorette's trash, but remember, you're the opera singer who likes the Eagles. All right. All right. That's fair, I guess. Um, You know, getting back to the trial, I do have to say that the coverage is like, it's insane, man. I mean, yeah, I feel like, you know, the Chandler case, it just seemed like just the tabloids covered it. Well, that's true that the Chandler allegations were largely covered in the tabloid media, but there are also mainstream news organizations that covered it. The LA Times, New York Times, Washington Post, the Boston Globe. Right, right. You know, it feels like maybe it's different because it's like 24-hour news coverage these days. Is that is that part of it? Well, it's in part of that because there are so many more networks out by the time of the 2005 trial. But one of the primary differences, though, is the fact that there's a trial, like a criminal trial, which did feed into wall-to-wall 24-hour news shows. But the Chandler allegations, there was no trial. There was a civil settlement, and that was the whole point of the Jackson team. But with this, you know, at a trial, the news media actually has a place to gather. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. So, so I guess the the judge read the charges and Snedden gave his opening statements. Yeah, well, a couple of housekeeping items about that day. After reading the indictment, Judge Melville ordered it to be unsealed. You may recall that he unsealed portions of the indictment when the grand jury indicted Jackson in April of 2004. Yeah, 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 right. And also that same week, uh, he ordered the grand jury transcripts to be unsealed, too. Whoa, that's a that's a pretty big ruling. Man. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure from the media to unseal it. News organizations even petitioned Melville to unseal it like a year before. But the day that Snedden gave his opening statements, Melville ordered the whole indictment to be made public, including the 28 overt acts that mm-hmm. had been redacted from its initial release and the names of the unindicted co-conspirators. Huh. Do you know why the um, unindicted co-conspirators were, in quotes, unindicted? Like, why weren't they charged um, just like on the spot if there's a conspiracy being alleged? I haven't seen any concrete reason by the prosecution, but there was some speculation that they remained unindicted in order so the DA might get them to flip on Jackson. And it also enabled the DA to bring in the conspiracy charge, which would theoretically be easier to prove than child molestation. Oh, I see. Right. The other thing, and both the defense and prosecution agreed to this, was that the names of the Arvizos be made public. Oh, I didn't realize they weren't public. No, not yet, officially. In the investigation, if you recall, Gavin Arvizo was given the pseudonym Kevin, and in the grand jury transcripts, they named him John Doe, and his mom was Jane Doe, his brother was, uh, his brother Star was James Doe. Huh. So it was like... Kind of like, who cares? Might as well at this point. But some news organizations had withheld their names, but their names were already pretty widely known. And the Arvizos agreed to use their real names. And also Tom Snedden, the prosecutor, pointed out that the technical problems of redacting their names and renaming them from all of the evidentiary materials, the videos, the tapes, it'd be almost like insurmountable. So why fart around with trying to keep track of it all? Right, right. What was the gist of Jackson's lawyer's um, opening statement? Thomas Mesero kind of came in hot and really laid out what looked like a strong case that the Arvizos were out asking for money from celebrities, that the mom lied about being assaulted by guards at JCPenney, and that they were basically looking for another mark in another con and who was a bigger mark than Michael Jackson. Right. I mean, it it does make sense. Um, But both stories kind of make sense to me, right? I mean, Uh I kind of find myself holding these two theories up um, at this point, and I can't seem to decide which one holds more water. 
Uh, I mean, I'm in the same boat as you, to use right. another aquatic metaphor. <laughs> right. So my question is, I guess, who who exactly was the first witness? Take a guess. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor? No. Elton John? No. Jay Leno? No. <laughs> Regis Philbin? No, but those are actually really good wild card <laughs> guesses for celebrities that <laughs> seem like they would be involved in this case. Yeah, no, right. it was a journalist, someone who made a documentary that started this whole thing. Oh, sure. Um, that Brit- uh, Martin Bashir. On the day after the statements were presented, District Attorney Tom Snedden called Martin Bashir to the stand. Snedden tried to get Bashir to discuss how he thought Jackson was a predator, and then... In cross-examination, Mesereau tried to get Bashir to admit he manipulated Jackson by communicating with his staff leading up to the filming that he wanted to glorify the singer in the innocence of Neverland. But, for the most part, Bashir, through his lawyer objecting, refused to answer questions, citing constitutional protection of the First Amendment and the California Shield Law, which is made up of a California constitutional provision and California Evidence Code section that provides a journalist can't be held in contempt of a court by not answering questions related to sources, notes, information gathering, and reporting. In other words, any unpublished information. That included many questions Bashir was asked regarding agreements with Jackson on the documentary and how Bashir intended to portray it. Overall, Bashir refused to answer at least 20 times on the advice of his lawyer, according to USA Today. The few times Bashir answered questions, he spoke in a near whisper, according to reports from the Associated Press. Jackson watched from his seat, seemingly agitated. Frankly, the access, the open access he gave to Martin Bashir is unprecedented. Author Aphrodite Jones. And you just see him as a very naive soul who truly trusted that Martin Bashir was going to help him establish himself as a spokesman for children, as a humanitarian, as somebody who wanted to create an international children's holiday. Now, granted, Jackson had an agenda, and that was to... um, you know, wash away the stain of the Jordy Chandler settlement and everything that had been going on in the media that was, you know, constantly pounding on him and pointing to him as an alleged pedophile. The prosecution had hoped the Martin Bashir documentary would sway the jurors in their favor, especially the scenes of Gavin resting his head on Jackson's shoulder and the bits about sharing the bed with children. Thomas Mesero, though, believed it backfired. I think the prosecution was so bedazzled by the documentary that they wanted to start off with what they thought was going to be a disaster for the defense. Frankly, when I saw that documentary, I expected the worst, after all I was hearing. When I finished it, I said, this is going to help us, because you saw a very gentle, kind, talented Um, vulnerable Michael Jackson from childhood on up. You saw him performing. You saw his and heard his music. It was very infectious. Uh, He seemed very innocent. And he seemed to be being led down a path um, in ways that were not very, very honorable. Uh, He seemed like he was being manipulated. You know, honestly, I think showing that documentary benefited the defense to a great degree. Reporter Diane Diamond. 
the the jury got to hear Michael Jackson talking to them. He he wasn't actually testifying, of course, and he wasn't ever going to be cross-examined, but there he was speaking in the courtroom, even though it was just on film. He was shown through that documentary as this sweet, docile, child-loving guru. And Michael Jackson was no fool. He had insurance in the form of his own videographers filming behind the scenes and alongside Bashir's team. Some of this footage ended up in the Maury Povich follow-up rebuttal program on Fox. The only thing that Jackson did to protect himself was have his own videographer present at Neverland and elsewhere um, to tape the interviews that Bashir was doing. And that's what we got from the, quote, outtake footage. And when the outtakes were eventually played for the jury, Jackson appeared to be constantly manipulated into areas of incriminating himself by Martin Bashir. Well, the outtakes made him look very manipulative, in my opinion. Yes, they did. But, you know, not only did that, in my opinion, humanize Michael Jackson, show a lot about his life and personality and talent and musical genius. It showed his naivete. It showed his idealism in wanting to set up an international holiday for children. On March 3rd and March 4th, 2005, Dave Lynn Arvizo, now a freshman in college, testified that on the flight back from the Miami trip, after the planned press conference that never came to fruition, she saw Jackson sharing his Coke can with Gavin and whispering to each other. Dave Lynn further testified that Jackson gave Gavin his jacket and his watch on the flight. Prosecutor Snedden asked Davelin if she'd ever seen Jackson behave inappropriately with her brother. Davelin testified that yes, she had. She spoke of Jackson hugging and kissing Gavin, and on one occasion, when she was in Jackson's bedroom, of seeing the singer and Gavin lying together in bed, hugging over and over, and Jackson kissing him on the head. She told of seeing Jackson pouring wine into glasses, of seeing half-empty bottles of liquor in his room when the boys were there with him. But on cross-examination, Jackson attorney Thomas Mesereau pointed out inconsistencies in what Davelin had reported to the police over the years. How she failed to tell police when interviewed that her own father had molested her when she was a child. A memory, she said, she had trouble with clarifying until, at one point, she overheard an argument about it between her parents years later. Mesereau presented evidence about the young woman's foggy memory from the many devastating events in her life that had been logged and recorded at the hands of healthcare providers, institutional lackeys, and law enforcement agents, visits to the hospital when her brother was sick, police interviews for domestic violence, court hearings from her parents' divorce, and meetings with faceless attorneys over the bulk of her youth, all leading up to her family's complicated and troubled relationship with Michael Jackson. There, Mesereau compared her statements and misstatements to police officers the years before during their investigation and the grand jury after that. I was young, Davelin kept saying, and I don't remember, or it was too long ago. She seemed exhausted by the cross-examination. When Mesereau pointed out that Davelin testified the day before to seeing Jackson pour wine, but years before that, when she had been questioned about it by the Santa Barbara Sheriff's deputies, she never mentioned anything about Jackson pouring wine. Davelin became frustrated. I didn't know I had to say every little detail, she replied. I was young back then. I didn't know I had to say every little detail for it to be right. Star Arvizo, now age 14, 
who was the only witness to his brother's alleged molestation two years before, also struggled in cross-examination by Thomas Mesereau. The boy had trouble answering the most basic questions from Jackson's defense attorney. When Mesereau asked him if he had discussed his testimony with the district attorney, Starr initially answered no, but in the very next question, when Mesereau asked him if he knew what questions the DA was going to ask him that day, Starr answered one or two of them. In answer to Mesereau's obvious follow-up question, how did you know about them, Starr answered that Sneddon had called him that morning. On a more crucial detail, Mesereau questioned Starr's changing story about what he saw Michael Jackson doing with his brother. When Mesereau pointed out that there were times that Starr had described Jackson putting his hand on top of his brother's underwear, Starr replied, I don't remember saying that. Mesereau continued, And there were other times you said he put his hand inside his underwear, right? Starr replied, Yes. Further revisiting the scene of Gavin's molestation, Mesereau focused on the inconsistencies between Starr's testimony to the grand jury and interviews with the Santa Barbara sheriffs, which Mesereau apologized for often referring to as police. Things like whether Jackson's bedroom door was open or locked, how long he watched, and even the lighting, if it was dark, how could he see the empty vodka bottles on the nightstand and Jackson masturbating his brother. In another sad but poignant moment, Mesereau asked Starr about his habit of counting stairs, because Starr testified that he liked to count stairs and counted 17 stairs to Michael Jackson's bedroom suite. And what was the purpose for counting them, Mesereau asked the boy. I don't know. I do it at every house I go to with stairs. I just count the stairs. So you're a compulsive stair counter? No, I just count the stairs. Is that one of your hobbies also? No, Starr said. My other hobby's building airplanes, model airplanes. On day nine of the trial, Gavin Arvizo was going to take the stand. But on that morning, Michael Jackson was missing. It's a pajama party, everybody! Grab your pillow! Michael Jackson showed up to court today in his pajamas. Legal commentator and television host Nancy Grace, who was based in New York, spoke with Jane Velez Mitchell, who was outside the courtroom. Jane, what a day. Bring me up to date. It was one of the most astounding days in a courtroom ever. It's 8.30 a.m. We're all there waiting. The jury's outside, though, and suddenly the judge comes in. I, I see that the defendant's not present. His attorney, Tom Mesereau, jumps up. Uh, he's got a serious back problem. The judge, he's in a hospital. The judge doesn't want to hear it, doesn't want to talk to the doctor, and says, I am issuing a warrant for Michael Jackson's arrest. I'm forfeiting bail, but I'm going to hold it for an hour. And then the clock starts ticking, and it's a mad scramble to get Michael Jackson from this hospital about 37 miles away to this courthouse. The motorcade finally arrives. The doors fly open before it even stops. And out comes Michael Jackson moving very slowly for somebody who's at least four minutes late and could go to jail. He finally makes it in and the judge, I guess, decides to uh, be a nice guy and not send him to jail and, and let the four minutes or five minutes go. And uh, they resumed with this key day of testimony. The accuser on the stand telling his story of molestation allegedly by Michael Jackson. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Michael Jackson chose this particular day uh, to do what he did. Jackson arrived 10 minutes past Judge Melville's deadline in purple paisley pajamas with his parents and bodyguards around him. As the room fell silent, he struggled to sit down at the defense table. Because of Jackson's behavior that day, some thought it was drug-related. 
I asked Mesero about this. Did that event strike you as something that, knowing that Jackson had collapsed backstage years before and things like that, that that kind of kerfuffle that day, did that put any ideas in your head about drugs? Or was it just that Jackson was, you know, just kind of at his wit's end emotionally when that event happened or or in pain? Well, no, I, I think neither one is an accurate description of what I was thinking. I knew that Michael was nocturnal. I knew that he would often take walks in the middle of the night and look at the sky and the stars and the moon. And, you know, nature was a very cleansing process for him. Um, the fact that he would slip, uh, you know, in the middle of the night walking through Neverland did not seem like a illogical or implausible occurrence to me, nor did it seem like something that had to be drug induced at all. So he was taken to the hospital. I was told that the doctor was quite willing to talk to judge Melville. I brought it to judge Melville's attention immediately. And he was very firm and harsh that he didn't want to talk to the doctor. And Michael only had so much time to get to court or he was going to remand him into custody and uh, yank his bail. So at no time during that incident did I suspect Michael Jackson was on drugs at all. I'm the one that told him, don't go home and change. Get to the courthouse now. If you go home and try to change, you may not make it in time. You may lose, I think it was $3 million bail, and you may spend the rest of the trial in custody. He was basically shell-shocked during the trial. AP reporter... Linda Deutsch. I mean, I go back to the day that we all called Pajama Day when he, he went to a hospital first and showed up in his pajamas because the judge was adamant that he had to be there and wouldn't let him stay at the hospital. Um, and he was, he was not in good shape. Record producer Rudy Provincio, who worked with Jackson and was a prosecution witness at the trial, gave me his unbridled opinion on Jackson's drug abuse. Just to make sure everyone's super clear, my belief is that if Michael Jackson had been convicted, he would have had to have gotten help and he would still be alive. Because now, now it was over. The story was over. His drug addiction has become public record. And I also will tell you this, you know, because I'm not going to throw Tom Mesro under the bus, even though he grilled me. You know, um, I always felt really sad for Tom Israel. I really thought, I would sit on that stand and think, you poor man. Would it took me years to kind of get my head around, you're getting in 15 minutes and you're still getting it. And here comes Michael in pajamas, you're still getting it. He wasn't in great shape for the trial. I mean, he showed up on the day of the arraignment, the first appearance in court, he was stoned. Former prosecutor, Ron Zonin. He was nodding out when he was sitting there. And um, he was already abusing drugs rather significantly. We found a letter between, you know, a a doctor that had sent him a letter about a clinic that he operated to help get him off drugs. So we, we, you know, we knew that that was already a significant problem in his life. And and that and the amount of booze that he was drinking, you know, and, and he looked it. He just, he was emaciated. He wasn't really eating. Well, I never was aware that Michael Jackson had a drug problem. Jackson attorney Thomas Mesero by phone. Uh, I assumed, given the, the pressures he was under, that he might go to a doctor and take something for sleep 
maybe something for depression and anxiety, it's not unusual for a defendant in a criminal case to need some sleep medication and some medication for depression and or anxiety. That's not unusual at all, and it's very understandable why you might go to a physician to try and cope with the stresses of a situation like this. But I really never asked him what he was taking, and I never thought he had a drug problem. He was always very coherent and logical and clear-minded with me. Tom Mesereau was, of course, the lead defense counsel. But there was also counsel who really were sort of representing the family. Media pool coordinator Peter Shapelin. They didn't quite get to sit next to Tom. They sort of sat adjacent to Tom. Think almost in terms of the the children's Thanksgiving table. They were close by, but not at the table. And their job was to make sure that that, uh, that Michael showed up every morning. Their job was to make sure that he managed to get through the weekend. Their job was to make sure that nothing untoward happened that would then jeopardize the court case itself. And that's a credit to Mr. Mesereau. That's a credit to, to Tom Mesereau, who was, who was masterful. And as you'll recall, the days that Michael had the greatest amount of, say, difficulty or illness were always Mondays. He was enabled all weekend to be on on his, I can't say that because I don't know. The presumption was that he was doing his drugs to a greater degree or excess over the weekends. And that's why Mondays were, were problematic. That was the supposition. I can't tell you that I know this to be true. Parenthetically, I can tell you I know it to be true. And the reason I know it is because no one was allowed to talk to Michael when he came in. He was, you know, he was, he, he traveled in this bubble of his own security and his attorneys. But as he went through the metal detector, most mornings I would simply be standing there and I'd say, Good morning, Mr. Jackson. And many mornings he would respond just with a morning, hello. Some days he was unable to do that. Some days he was unable to walk through the metal detector unassisted. I presume, I presume, I do not know, I do not, I can't say that I'm, I'm telling you that I know this, but I'm presuming that he was just in extreme pain, whether his back or whatever, because he was really gingerly walking. I mean, you know what it's like when somebody's really, really hurting Maybe they've been in an accident or they've had an operation and they just ache in every part of their body, sort of, you know, you moved, you moved a little to the left. Ooh, that hurts in the, to the right. Mr. Jackson was like that a lot of mornings. I asked former prosecutor Ron Zonin why Jackson's drug abuse wasn't allowed into the trial. Um, they, they tried to keep it, uh, keep it out, and, and we agreed that we wouldn't bring it in. Um, this was something that I disagreed with. This was Thompson M's decision. Tom was concerned that a jury will conclude that because of in, because of intoxication, he couldn't form the requisite intent that you need for a conviction for a child molest case. It's a specific intent crime. You have to have what they call the mens rea to go with the actus reus. In other words, just not just the evil act, but the evil intent. And, and there is a body of law that says that uh, intoxication can vitiate that intent. Um, and I, I kept saying, Tom, it's, it's one of those things that it, it, academically it's available as a defense. It never works. Juries don't like it. But Tom was the DA, and 
he made the decision. Now we're really not going to go into that. And, and I disagreed with that. And, uh, and they did make a motion and we just didn't contest it. Essentially, we should have been hammering on it because I feel that people who are stoned and drunk, um, their inhibitions are lessened. They, they, there's an expression my grandmother used to say in Yiddish. What's, what's in your heart when you're sober is on your tongue when you're drunk. Um, there's people who say things when they're drunk. Well, people not just say things, they do things. Their inhibitions are reduced. You, 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 your, your filters are gone. You're, you, you do things that you want to do that you wouldn't do under normal circumstances. And, and it's, it's easier to do something criminal and awful when you're drunk and when you're stoned than when you're sober and when you're thinking straight. That was a fundamental disagreement that I had with Tom in the course of the trial. Stoned or not, while Michael Jackson watched in his pajamas, his hair uncombed, Tom Snedden called Gavin Arvizo to the witness stand. Gavin was no longer the bony, fragile, and sickly figure he appeared as a boy with cancer. His growth was stunted from chemotherapy, according to prosecutor Ron Zonin, but at the trial, he was a husky, teenage football player. On his examination, DA Tom Snedden led Gavin through some of the alleged events that Gavin told the grand jury before. Michael Jackson appearing naked with an erection in front of Gavin and his brother, the boys retreating from the room, the nights they spent playing video games in the arcade and drinking alcohol, alcohol that was often located in a wine cellar that existed below the arcade and was accessed by moving a jukebox out of the way and walking down a flight of stairs. Snedden led Gavin through the story he wanted the jury to hear about Jackson and Gavin's first sexual contact. Tell the jury how it came about that you and Mr. Jackson were in bed together and what you were doing, Snedden told Gavin. We just came back from drinking in the arcade, Gavin testified, and then we went up to his room, and then we were sitting there for a while, and Michael started talking to me about masturbation. Gavin went on. He told me a story of he saw a boy one time, he was looking over the balcony or something, and he saw a boy who didn't masturbate, and he had sex with a dog. Now when he said that, Snedden replied, what, if anything, did he say or do after that? He said that if I masturbated, and I told him I didn't, and then he said if I didn't know how, that he could do it for me. And what did you say? Snedden asked. And I said I didn't really want to. All right, and then what happened? And then he said it was okay, that it was natural, that it's natural for boys to do it. All right, what happened after that? We were under the covers, and I had his pajamas on, because he had this big thing of pajamas, and he gave me his pajamas. And that's when he put his hand in my pants, and he started masturbating me. Snedden asked Gavin how long it lasted. Maybe five minutes, I guess, he answered. Snedden asked Gavin if he knew what ejaculation was. He said he did. Snedden asked him if he had ejaculated, and Gavin replied, yes. Snedden asked Gavin if anything happened after that, that evening. I felt kind of weird. I was embarrassed about it, Gavin said. And then he said it was okay, that it was natural. Kind of like to comfort me, because I felt weird. And then after a while, Gavin testified, we just went to sleep. Gavin testified that a day after that, the same thing happened. Drinking at the arcade together, wandering back to Jackson's room, and Jackson proceeding to coach Gavin into acquiescing to being masturbated. But this time, Gavin testified, Jackson grabbed his hand 
and tried to have Gavin do it to him. But he pulled his hand away, Gavin testified. He would always say that it was natural, Gavin testified, and don't be scared, and it was okay. Snedden asked Gavin, now how long do you think it lasted the second time? The same time, Gavin answered. Did you ejaculate the second time? I think I did. Now, when was it, at what point in time, that Mr. Jackson reached over and grabbed your arm? Maybe like halfway through it? Did you say anything to him when you pulled your hand away? I said that I didn't want to. Did Mr. Jackson say anything to you? I don't think he did. Were there any other occasions, Snedden asked, where Mr. Jackson tried to do something to you that you felt was inappropriate, that you remember? Gavin answered simply, no. Nothing further, Your Honor, Snedden declared, and it was time for cross-exam. Mesereau approached Gavin on the witness stand. Gavin, my name is Thomas Mesereau, and I speak for Mr. Jackson, okay? Okay, Gavin replied. I'm on his side, all right? All right, Gavin said. Mesereau then gave the preamble that he often gave prosecution witnesses at the top of his cross-exam. If I ask you any question and you don't understand the question, just say so. Don't answer it, okay? If something seems unclear, just say, it's unclear, I don't understand it, and I'll try to rephrase it. Mesero then launched into a blitzkrieg on Gavin's allegations. Previous statements to detectives, grand jury testimony over the previous two years. He first started with Gavin's interview with social workers, which occurred during the Arvizo's time at Neverland, and resulted from a complaint at Gavin's school because of an official seeing the Martin Bashir documentary. Now, Mesero said, in that interview, you told the three social workers that Mr. Jackson was a good guy, right? Yes. You said he had been like a father figure to you. You said a lot of good things about him, true? Pretty much, yeah. Mesero then pivoted to Gavin and the circuitous journey that led to his molestation allegations. How he and his mother first went to the Laugh Factory's Jamie Masada, then to Jamie Masada's lawyer, Bill Dickerman, who then referred them to Larry Feldman, the same lawyer who had represented Jordy Chandler a decade before. It was only after you met with Larry Feldman that you started talking about inappropriate touching, true? I didn't talk, I didn't randomly talk about it with people. Well, I didn't ask if you randomly talked about it. I asked if you talked about it. Who are you specifying that I talked about it to? Gavin asked Mesereau. Larry Feldman, whom you knew had sued Michael Jackson in the early 90s, right? No, I did not tell anything like that to Larry Feldman, Gavin answered, telling Mesero the only person he told anything about it to was Dr. Stan Katz, and then later he told his whole story to the police detectives. You went to two lawyers and a psychologist whom Larry Feldman referred you to before you went to any police officer, right? Mesero asked. Yes. Mesero then focused on the lavish life that Gavin was given from the generosity of Michael Jackson. Your meals would be paid by, for by Michael Jackson, true? Did you get a watch from Mr. Jackson? Did you get a jacket from Mr. Jackson? Gavin answered in the affirmative to all of them. Did your family go back and forth and stay at Neverland for free? Mesero asked. Everyone stays in Neverland for free, Gavin told him. Well, Mesero shot back, who do you think pays the bills? Soon, Prosecutor Tom Snedden objected to Mesero as being argumentative, and Judge Melville instructed both the witness and Mesero 
to not argue with each other. Mesereau then shifted to what he called Gavin and his family's many escapes from Neverland in an attempt to counter the charge that the family had been held against their will by Jackson and his associates. Mesereau asked, You would travel by limousine back and forth, true? Gavin replied, yes. You also traveled by Rolls-Royce on occasion, true? No, I only traveled in a Rolls-Royce when I was escaping from Neverland with Jesus. When you were escaping? Yes. The following day, on March 14, 2005, Mesero continued his cross-examination of Gavin, first focusing on an inconsistency in Gavin's statements to Santa Barbara Sheriff's detectives Steve Robel and Paul Zellis. In the transcript of that exchange, Gavin was asked if he knew what masturbation was, and he told the detectives a story his grandmother told them, that if a man doesn't masturbate, he may rape a woman. Yet, Mesero pointed out to Gavin, he told a nearly identical story to the jury, except that it was Michael Jackson telling him about the perils of not masturbating. Why did your story change between that interview and your testimony? Mesero asked Gavin. That didn't change because Michael tried to explain it to me first, Gavin testified. Now later, when I came back from Neverland, I guess my grandmother saw that I was very confused about sexuality and things like that, and my grandmother explained to me a lot of things. Well, Mr. Arviso, Mesero said, I understand your position, but when the sheriffs asked you what masturbation was, you didn't say, Mr. Jackson told me if a man doesn't do it, he may rape a woman. You said, my grandmother told me if a man doesn't do it, he may rape a woman. Correct? Both my grandmother and Michael were trying to talk to me about the, pretty much the birds and the bees story, Gavin testified. Okay, and they pretty much said the identical thing. Is that what you're telling me? Not exactly. Well, the quotes are almost identical, aren't they? You see, Michael was trying to tell me that I have to masturbate. My grandmother was actually telling me, giving me the talk. Michael was just talking about masturbation. Mesero then asked Gavin about a conversation he'd had with D.A. Snedden about what Gavin had said to a dean at one of his schools who was concerned, following the Martin Bashir documentary, about what, if anything, had happened between him and Michael Jackson. Mr. Arvizo, he asked you whether you had been interviewed by Dean Alpert and whether you had confessed to him that Mr. Jackson never did anything to you of a sexual nature, right? Yeah, I told Mr. Alpert that he didn't do anything to me. Mesero then went into a meticulously detailed account of Gavin's disciplinary problems at school, how he was disciplined by one teacher after his request for a pencil escalated into an argument, how he got in trouble for making fun of ROTC members for looking stupid. Do you remember having problems with Miss Slaughter? Mesero asked. It's because I asked her to go to the restroom, and I told her that I had to go to the restroom or else I'll have problems, and she still wouldn't let me go. Who is Mr. Finkelstein? He was my math teacher. You had problems in that class also, didn't you? I think everyone in his class had a problem with him, Gavin said, then clarified. I was kind of argumentative sometimes, and I shouldn't have been. I didn't like the way he taught because I wasn't learning anything. Mesero went down Gavin's class list from the many schools he switched from elementary and middle school, Bernice Carlson Hospital School, Lacan Middle School, enrolling in the City of Angels Independent Study Program. He brought up another teacher with the last name Moon. Were you accused of being defiant, singing in the classroom, talking, disrupting testing, and they had to call your parents? Mesero then showed Gavin all the glowing cards and letters he had written to Michael Jackson, 
calling him Daddy Michael and saying, I love you and thank you, Daddy Michael, for being my best, best friend forever and ever and signing them, your son, Gavin. He asked Gavin about the many gifts his family had received from Jackson, such as a truck, which ended up being totaled. He ping-ponged Gavin with more inconsistencies between his statements to detectives and those to the grand jury. Details such as telling them he and his brother didn't drink much with Jackson, or exactly when Jackson allegedly and appropriately touched him after they got drunk. How Gavin first told prosecutors that Jackson had molested him before filming the rebuttal tape of Gavin and his family praising Jackson, but then changed his story to it happening after. Gavin stumbled and stumbled, trying to explain his foggy memory of all the strange events and timelines amidst all of the locations. Miami, his grandparents' house, the Turnberry Inn, the Calabasas Inn, Kaiser Hospital, Jay Jackson's house, and of course, Neverland. Mesereau brought up for the jury that Gavin told the psychologist, Dr. Stan Katz, that the chemotherapy gave him memory problems. Yeah, for a while I had memory problems, Gavin testified. I have to take, even now, the 500 milligrams of amoxicillin and 5 milligrams of lisinprol for my kidney and because I don't have a spleen. Mesereau honed in on his theory that things soured for the Arvizos during their time in Jackson's orbit. At some point, Mesereau told Gavin, you, your mother, your sister, and your brother realized that you were not going to spend the rest of your lives as part of Michael Jackson's family, correct? Gavin denied the notion, and Mesereau later spent a good deal of time playing clips of Gavin praising Jackson in the rebuttal video, asking him which parts were lies and which parts were true. In his redirect of Gavin, Prosecutor Sneddon crafted his questioning of Gavin to clarify that the boy, now a freshman in high school, had made the honor roll, didn't get into fights anymore, and was involved in after-school activities. Gavin testified that now that he had a stepdad in his life, Jay Jackson, no relation to Michael Jackson, he was doing better overall with a model father figure. Gavin, Sneddon said, I just have one last question to ask you. Yesterday, in response to Mr. Mesereau's questions, you told him that Mr. Jackson was like a father figure to you. Is that correct? Yes. And that you thought he was one of the coolest guys in the world, correct? Yes. And you admired him. Well, Gavin answered, I only admire God, but he was a pretty cool guy. How do you feel about Mr. Jackson now, in light of what he did to you? Sneddon asked. I don't really like him anymore, Gavin said. I don't think he's really deserving of the respect that I was giving him, and is the coolest guy in the world. Despite Sneddon's attempts to paint a picture for the jury that Gavin was an honorable kid in a difficult situation and the victim of sexual abuse by Michael Jackson, Thomas Mesereau's high-octane cross-examination threw the boy off balance. So, so you have a child who is on the stand talking about the most embarrassing, horrible things that happened to him in his life. And he's doing it in front of not only the people in the courtroom, but in front of the world. Former FBI behavioral expert and prosecution consultant in the case, Jim Clementi. And he has an adult male who went to law school. He has, who has decades of experience. And is it possible for that guy to trip him up on the stand? Of course. Is that boy on the stand being re-victimized by the system? Yes, he is. And it's a terrible thing. But with our system, this is how it's done. And so it's very difficult 
it's very difficult to get a prosecution to be comprehensive enough in a case like this to be flawless so that you get a conviction because you're going up against a celebrity with a lot of money, a lot of power, and a lot of image that precedes him. And so this child is like David going against Goliath without a shot. He's just himself, and he's sitting there alone on the stand, and he's doing the best he can. Right, or Gavin was lying. I mean, that's totally a possibility. Yes, of course it is. Mesero certainly tried to paint him as being untruthful, and that all of Gavin and his brother's inconsistencies in their testimony were the result of this untruthfulness rather than simple errors in their memory. On Thursday, jurors listened as the teen contradicted his brother and sister's testimony and couldn't recall key details of the molestation allegations, something lead defense attorney Tom Mesero pounced on. Correspondent Vince Gonzalez reported on Gavin's testimony for CBS. And when his testimony wrapped today, he left the prosecution case under a cloud. The teen admitted on the stand he twice told a dean at his middle school that Jackson never molested him. The teen said, quote, I told him that Michael didn't do anything to me. The investigation of Jackson has been going on for two years, but prosecutors first interviewed the dean only on Saturday, nearly two weeks into the trial. Today, the teen told District Attorney Tom Snedden he denied the molestation because he was being teased in school and, quote, I didn't want to make it worse. CBS legal analyst Andrew Cohen concurred that Gavin didn't particularly shine for the jury on the witness stand. He was a terrible witness. He wasn't likable, he wasn't credible, and he raised more questions than he answered. And uh, he's the heart of the prosecution case. If the jury doesn't believe him, they're not going to convict Jackson. Prosecutors are now whipping through sheriff's detectives who investigated the case. In comparison, court observers say it's tedious testimony. Bob? Here, anchor Bob Schaefer speaks to Vince Gonzalez. You know, Vince, if whatever Michael Jackson did, if this is the best that the prosecution can do, what we saw today, I think they're going to have a hard time proving this case. That's the opinion of most observers. It's not over until the jury gets the case, but the defense has done an excellent job of taking prosecution witnesses and making them stars for the defense, and that will likely continue. I remember when listening to Gavin testify. Media poll coordinator Peter Shaplin. I remember, vividly remember using the word, he's not that great a witness, he's sort of sullen. He's, he's an adolescent. It's not for me to judge how he should have been or how he was, but he didn't come across on the witness stand as being weepy, and, and, and he just didn't. He, he came across as being a young man. To the contrary, according to Ron Zonin, the prosecution believed that Gavin came off fine to the jury. He was very articulate, Zonin felt, and read as intelligent. But, Zonin conceded, many jurors tend to not cotton to teenage witnesses. In cases of child sexual abuse, Zonin told me, one of the reasons that prosecutors often try to bring a case to trial as soon as possible is because once the alleged victim ages into being an adolescent or a teenager, jurors find them less sympathetic. It seemed that in the midst of the prosecution's attempts to paint Jackson simply as a child molester, the jury couldn't get past the weaving, bizarre storylines that encompassed the Arviso narrative. With the intent to establish Neverland as a setting for child abuse, prosecutors put on former housekeeper Kiki Fournier, who worked at the ranch off and on from 1991 to 2003. Fournier testified to Jackson's frequent child guests, many who stayed for weeks at a time without their parents. Prosecutor Gordon Auchincloss 
asked her if there was discipline in Neverland. Fournier explained that children were free to behave how they wanted, eat whatever they wanted, playing video games long into the night. With the absence of an authority figure, she testified, these children became wild, and without their parents there, it became like Pinocchio's Pleasure Island sometimes. The prosecution knew that the defense would have a string of witnesses to say that Gavin and his brother did misbehave at Neverland, and they were also already feeling the problems of the inconsistencies in the children's testimony from what they had told detectives. To help demonstrate to the jury that Gavin was a victim of child sexual abuse at the hands of Jackson, they brought on an expert witness. You use expert witnesses in two potential capacities in in, uh, child molest cases. One is to explain the behavior of the victim. Um, What's to explain, sometimes children are inconsistent in what they say. Sometimes there's very late disclosure. It could be months late, years late, decades late. Sometimes it's never disclosed. Um, There's a lot of... uh, um, unusual behavior by victims that's explained by child molestation accommodation syndrome that, that 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 does require some explanation by an expert and we can do that we can bring experts in to do that and the expert that we brought in was a psychologist from university of california uh, i believe davis campus dr orcaza anthony orcaza who's quite knowledgeable in that field and with a tremendous amount of experience dr Yerquesa testified that the children who experience sexual abuse often have trouble disclosing that abuse and instead cope with it, especially child male victims who have the potential stigma of embarrassment and ridicule of being labeled homosexual by their peers. Yerquesa testified that when a child finally does disclose, the details aren't totally consistent. It's usually vague. When prosecutor Ron Zonin asked Dr. Yerquesa, If child victims who are disclosing their stories over time to authorities are consistent, the doctor answered, the research supports that they are not likely to be consistent. He added, part of it also is there's some areas in which kids are not attentive to. For example, children don't usually wear watches. And so if you were to ask a child, you know, did it happen at 2.30 or 3.30 in the afternoon? Did it last 35 minutes or 55 minutes? Their orientation to time is different than that of an adult so they may not be accurate on issues of time. In another scenario, the doctor described how it's difficult for a child molester to simply walk up to a child and stick their hands down the kid's pants, how it takes a progression of events and a long game of trust building before wearing down the child's inhibitions. Showing them sexually explicit material is often a tool. When Mesero cross-examined Dr. Yerquesa, he focused on the issue of false allegations, peppering the doctor if he had ever studied or taught about false allegations of child molestation. Mesereau asked him, and would it be correct to say to the jury, as you sit here today, you don't make a living evaluating whether or not claims of sexual abuse by children are true or not? Certainly, the doctor answered, explaining that he made his living rather as a faculty member, teacher, and mental health provider. I'm not involved in the determination of whether a particular child has been abused or not, he testified, It is not the place of a mental health provider to make a determination about whether a particular person was abused or not, or whether a particular person is a perpetrator or not. In the criminal setting, that's the responsibility of a jury. Toward the end of March, jurors saw a sampling of the sexually explicit material found in Jackson's house from the raid at Neverland. About 75 images from Jackson's collection were displayed not only for the jury, 
but a room full of eager reporters, and received less enthusiastically, no doubt, by Michael Jackson's own family. As I recall, I was sitting directly behind Catherine Jackson when these were projected up on the big screen. It was very embarrassing. Reporter Diane Diamond. It was a lot more than just, uh, you know, your tepid buy it over at the drugstore pornography. It was way more than just Playboy magazines. I remember one in particular, Poppin' Mamas. It was pregnant women. Um, playing with each other and men. Jackson attorney Thomas Mesro maintains that the selection of nude periodicals shown to the jury and the bulk of what was seized in the raid at Neverland was at most pedestrian. Well, 99% of what they call pornography were what I call girly magazines, Playboy, Penthouse, magazines like that showing naked women. And they kept showing edition after edition after edition, and I thought boring the jury, blowing up these pictures of of naked women. And of course, I used that to show that uh, he was not a pedophile, that he was in fact heterosexual and attracted to women. They tried to say that this was grooming material, that uh, pedophiles would groom potential victims with this kind of you know, risque material, and I think their their argument backfired. I think I was cross-examining the Arvizo brother, about one edition of Playboy, as I recall. And I got him to say that he'd been shown that edition and then proved that the Arvizos had left Neverland before it was published. It was actually a copy of Barely Legal magazine that Starr had claimed to have been shown by Jackson. When Mesro cross-examined the boy, he was able to discredit him as lying because the date on the particular issue came out several months after the Arvizos left Neverland for good. The boy pleaded that he meant, in general terms, that Jackson had showed him various issues of Barely Legal when it was put on the screen the day before. All right, so I've got to say it. I mean, why did Jackson have all this porn? Well, for the purposes of this show, Omar, I think we should adhere to what both parties agreed to call it in court, sexually explicit material. All right. I mean, whatever whatever you call it, it to me it's porn, and it it really bothers me that Michael Jackson had it, you know, just strewn about. Well, I think Mesero was able to paint it for the jury that Michael Jackson was just a regular guy with girly magazines. Yeah, man, but that's the thing. He's not he's not a regular guy, and also Hustler is like really pretty hardcore and a lot more than just like a girly magazine. Yeah, and it's not like Michael Jackson's exactly like your dad's friend who's got a Hooters catalog in his woodworking shop in the basement, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, MJ's an international superstar whose whole deal um, had been to help children and have children visit his property and and admittedly um, had slumber parties with children in his bedroom all the time. And apparently, like, all of these magazines are just casually strewn about. It's like, you know, I remember Bert Fields saying Michael was – um, I think he said childlike, and he used words like asexual, and I, I think Mesro backed that up too. And and he was, and I think Mesro said, oh, he was so innocent and pure at heart. And you know, if the guy was so wholesome and modest, just a, a man, right, like an adult man, yeah. if, he, if he was so wholesome and modest, how can he be drinking booze with kids and having? All of this porn everywhere. It's actually explicit material. Yeah, I know, man. You know, no, I mean, it's a good point. I, I, I kind of actually hadn't thought about it. So, so what happened? Like, 
for instance, here's the thing for me with the fingerprints. What happened with the fingerprints? Did they find um, the kids' fingerprints on this like sexually explicit material, like you call it? Well, that the fingerprints thing was a whole nother ball of wax. The subsequent testimony about the material was a grueling three-day proceeding. The prosecution first brought a parade of Santa Barbara Sheriff's detectives to testify to the various findings at Neverland, and then a litany of forensic experts to discuss their findings related to the fingerprints of Jackson, Gavin, and Starr on various magazines. The defense took them down one by one. Alicia Romero, who supervised exhibits for the court, testified that she and another employee handled evidence items without wearing gloves. This opened up a slew of issues for the court. The defense also went back and forth with the prosecution over a claim that Gavin Arvizo was allowed to handle a magazine after the raid, during the grand jury proceedings, suggesting that the prosecution wanted to plant his fingerprints on it. This issue is still much ado with the Jackson fan community, who claim that Snedden compromised and tampered with evidence. Here's a clip of a Jackson defender named William Wagner, a local Access TV producer, being interviewed by Pearl Jr., the host of a show called True Talk, outside the Santa Maria Courthouse at the time of the trial. I'm Pearl Jr., and I am here with a local Santa Barbara TV star, TV host, TV producer. His name is William Wagner. And what is your opinion of them? Are they just really out for headlines, or are they out to really lynch Michael Jackson? Oh, this is beyond just a lynching in a railroad job. This wow. is this is like um, a corporate conspiracy that has hijacked our prosecutor prosecutorial team of Santa Barbara District Attorney's Office to make sure that Michael Jackson is bankrupt. Wow. Well, we've got the prosecutor caught in putting fingerprints of the child's fingerprints on a girly magazine Yes. at the grand jury mm. hearing. Mm. However, after much hubbub at the trial, the assertion by the defense that Gavin may have gotten his fingerprints on the magazines at the grand jury hearings were discredited when a technician clarified for the court that the magazine evidence was all held in a lab in neighboring Goleta and not presented at the grand jury hearings. Later, when a fingerprint technician, Nancy Diana Torres, testified to her work on processing the evidence, the defense focused on her trainee status and that this was her first big case in order to discredit her qualifications. There were arguments over the superglue fuming techniques compromising fingerprints, of the digital camera resolution on a cinescope being inferior. In the end, for the prints that were matched, at least 12 common points were found, and most had nearly 20 common points. At least one had 25 points that matched. After three days of testimony, conclusions were total of 12 prints from Jackson on eight magazines, five prints from Gavin on three magazines, and two prints from Star on one magazine. Jackson and Gavin's prints were on the same magazine, Hustler, Barely Legal Hardcore, but on different pages. And because the defense pointed out that there was no proof that Jackson actually showed the magazines to children, the jury was just left with seeing pictures of naked women for three days. But I, this, this idea that they had found tons of, again, what I call girly magazines... And they kept flashing these centerfolds of the jury and pictures. That I, kept, I remember saying to myself, I think they're helping us. Mm -hmm. 
I think they're helping us establish this is not someone who wants uh, sexual relationships with with ch- with you know male children. Uh, a lot of their tactics were bizarre. I think they were throwing everything but the kitchen sink and hoping something stuck, and nothing stuck. Although experts in the field of child sexual abuse contend that adult male abusers will often show boys heterosexual pornography as part of their grooming process, there was one particular item that Jackson owned that caused much debate in court and afterwards as to Jackson's sexual predilections. Boys Will Be Boys was a 1960s black-and-white photography, coffee-table-style book that featured pictures of adolescent males in various states of undress, playing in outdoor activities like running and swimming. The book was initially seized from a locked cabinet in Jackson's bedroom in the 1993 raid and was part of the evidence from that raid that was allowed as evidence into the 2005 trial. This book would later become a point of much debate between the prosecution and defense. Was it a collection of art photography? Was it actually given to Jackson by a fan and ignored by the singer? If so, why did it have Jackson's inscription written on the flyleaf? Even so, Jackson attorney Thomas Mesro explained in his opening statements that Michael Jackson was a voracious reader who had close to a million books at Neverland on all matter of subjects. Mesro told me, in our interview, that he had planned for a book expert to testify to the contents of Jackson's collection for the jury. Meanwhile, the prosecution, according to Ron Zonin, had its own expert planned to counter that testimony. My name is Kenneth Lanning, and I would say for a little over 45 years, I have been involved in studying the criminal aspects of deviant sexual behavior. I began doing this work when I was in the FBI back in 1973, where I became an instructor in certain in the area of what was then called sex crimes. And then about seven years later, uh, I began to specialize specifically in sexual victimization of children. According to prosecutor Ron Zonin, Ken Lanning was acting as a background consultant and a potential expert witness in the trial, along with another former FBI agent versed in child sex crimes, Jim Clementi. Both Ken Lanning and Jim Clementi were featured in episode six of Telephone Stories. The plan was for Ken Lanning to testify about his direct knowledge of and experience with profiling child sex offenders and aiding in their prosecution. Most importantly, he was on deck to testify to how Michael Jackson specifically fit the profile of a sex offender. Ron Zonin, again. The question of the type of information that would be given by Ken Lanning or by Jim Clemente, um, two FBI special agents who specialized in this field, that dealt more with the defendant, not the victim. Uh, their testimony would have talked about how, uh, what is a pedophile and how do pedophiles behave and what characteristics might we find at Neverland or in the defendant's own home that are consistent with him being a med- pedophile. Uh, there was certainly plenty of, for them to talk about because he really fit the very definition of a pedophile and his home and his property was consistent with it. All of the things that attract children, all of the toys, all of the, 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 the ways of being able to bond with a child and groom a child and uh, get a child to that position where, where, where they're accommodating towards sexual abuse. However, in order for the prosecution to be allowed to bring in an expert like Ken Lanning to testify, Jackson's lawyers first had to open the door to that kind of testimony, according to Zonin. He explains. 
problem is under California law, you can't do it until the defense opens that door. In other words, they claim he's not a pedophile. They bring an expert in to say his behavior is not consistent with pedophilia. Uh, anything along that line. And, and uh, one example would have been where they proposed um, a witness come in to talk about how all the books in his library are not consistent with the type of books that a pedophile would have. We had an expert on his book collection, willing to come in to explain what his book collection really was and what it wasn't. Jackson attorney Thomas Mesereau. And as I recall, the witness was associated with the university and was an expert on bibliography and, and books. But he would have testified that I've examined his entire book collection, and 99.9% are classics, are of books of historical importance, are books dealing with fictional novels or nonfiction or whatever it was, you know, most of which were very legitimate, non-controversial books. You know, he read the classics, he read history, he read literature, he read philosophy, he read religion. Michael was extremely well-read and wanted his children to be extremely well-read. And the prosecution pulled out, you know, two or three books and tried to make him look like he had a collection of pornography. So they did not want us calling that expert. Prosecutor Ron Zonin. And they were proposing that this witness testify, and they were giving us notice that that witness would be testifying into what. And my response was, fine, go ahead and put him on, but Ken Lanning will be taking the stand afterward to testify that uh, that there were plenty of things, certainly within with, with, within the confines of Neverland that were consistent with him being a, a pedophile and that he would have been the more compelling and persuasive witness, they ended up withdrawing their witness. They didn't put that witness on um, as a response, not to open the door to allow Ken Lanny to take the stand because they knew what he would have said and they knew how compelling it would have been. Even still, Ron Zonin met with Mesereau in chambers and agreed with the judge's approval that neither the book expert nor Ken Lanning would testify for the jury. Thomas Mesereau asserts that if Ron Zonin had called Ken Lanning to the stand, he would have eviscerated him. I think I was cross-examining their witnesses so effectively. And, you know, they'd seen me cross-examine a couple of so-called experts, and they knew what was coming if they called Lanning. I was going to ask him hypothetical questions based upon the case we were presenting. I don't know if you've looked at the transcripts about some of the examinations before, but I was just going through one witness after another and, you know, having more effective days than I've probably ever had in a trial in my life. I would have been asking hypothetical questions. What if a parent, you know, wants to manipulate for money and wants this and wants that and assume the following and assume this and assume that? Prosecutor Ron Zonin disagrees. Mesereau just believes he can destroy anybody in cross-examination. Lanning is a very experienced expert and has been cross-examined by any of them. And his testimony would have been very simple. He would have talked about the entire process of grooming and all that you find on Neverland is consistent with that process. Everything that Michael Jackson did, one child after another, and how he embraces them and how he, uh, you know, 
develops a closeness with them and how he develops an affectionate relationship that turns into uh, an emotional relationship and then a physical relationship. That's exactly what Lanningwood had described, this entire grooming process and what's involved in it. And he would describe it based on his experience of having handled hundreds of those cases and having studied many hundreds of others. I, I, he, he, I mean, Mesro would have been up there screaming at him like he usually does, but he wouldn't have ruined him. Had Zonin not agreed to the deal in Chambers, he told me that if the book expert had testified about the contents of Jackson's library, the prosecution had an additional ace in the hole. I should have still brought the book expert in because what they weren't aware of was the fact that there were no copyrights in any of those books that postdated the purchase of the house. That, that's a library that simply came with the house. He bought the house and the library. He didn't buy any of those books. So he would have been irrelevant anyway, whether or not the books don't reflect the mindset of a pedophile. He just bought it for, uh, for to, to have a library in his house that he would never look at. Something else that never reached the jury was the information about Michael Jackson's 1994 settlement with accuser Jordan Chandler. On March 22, 2005, Jackson's lawyers filed a motion with the court to object to a subpoena for the settlement documents from the Jordan Chandler civil case more than a decade earlier. In the 2005 motion, his attorneys argued that Jackson's insurance carrier negotiated and paid the settlement, not him. Therefore, the amount of the settlement was irrelevant and inflammatory and would, quote, destroy Mr. Jackson's right to a fair trial. To this day, the insurance carrier motion document is posted on many Jackson fan sites to demonstrate that the singer had no control over the 1994 settlement with Jordan Chandler, nor did he pay the boy or the boy's parents himself. The belief that an insurance company, not Jackson, paid the Chandlers is a pillar of faith among Jackson's defenders. It may have begun with a 1994 book written by a Jackson fan named Lisa D. Campbell called the King of Pop's Darkest Hour. Published by Brandon Books, the author claimed Transamerica Insurance forced the settlement on Jackson. However, despite multiple attempts to contact Lisa D. Campbell, she couldn't be reached to explain her sourcing for the claim. I tried to find actual evidence that an insurance company paid the Chandlers, but kept coming up empty-handed. On the many pro-Jackson fan websites, supporters cite the defense's 2005 court memo as proof. Even recently, a documentary short film called Neverland First Hand, investigating the Michael Jackson documentary, was released by the Jackson family and uploaded to YouTube. The video was made in an attempt to discredit the filmmakers and the now-adult accusers behind HBO's critically acclaimed and Emmy-nominated Leaving Neverland documentary. In one scene from the Jackson family's documentary, the film's producer, Liam McEwen, talked on the phone with private investigator Scott Ross, who worked for the defense during the 2005 trial. In the midst of their conversation, an image of the 2005 memo is presented on screen. Now, I've seen people say that because a settlement was reached in the Jordan Chandler case, that's a, a sign of Michael's guilt. What are your thoughts on that? The money that was paid out to Jordy Chandler didn't come from Michael Jackson, it came from his insurance company. I asked Thomas Mesero, Jackson's lead defense attorney in the trial, about the insurance carrier motion. The memo that was filed, I think it was in March of 2005, to keep the settlement of Jordy Chandler private. 
that you felt it would be prejudicial. And in that, you stated that the settlement was paid not by Michael Jackson, but by his insurance company. Um, Where did you get that information from? You know, I don't recall where that came from. Um, I know one civil lawyer of his didn't think insurance money had paid the settlement, but others apparently did think it. So I never really knew exactly. Why do you think that Zonin or Snedden didn't make you double check that, or did you double check that? I didn't double check it. I mean, I was doing a million other things. I didn't prepare the motion. I'm not even sure I argued it. And the more I think about it, I'm now convinced it was Carl Douglas that told me that insurance money didn't go into that settlement. But he may have said a little bit did. I just can't remember. Mesereau denies writing the motion, and it is signed by his defense co-counsel, Brian Oxman. I reached out to attorney Carl Douglas, who was present in the room in late 1993 for the settlement negotiations. He told me, quote, My recollection is there was a minimal contribution from his home insurance carrier, low six figures. Douglas went on, quote, The overwhelming majority of the payment came from Jackson's resources, end quote. In short, Michael Jackson, not the insurance company, paid the bulk of the settlement money to Jordan Chandler. Rumors to the contrary are absolutely false. Nevertheless, Judge Melville ruled in favor of Jackson in the 2005 case. That kept the evidence of the Chandler settlement out of the Arvizo trial. Here's prosecutor Ron Zonin. I mean, I thought that it was it was it was kind of a nonsense ruling from him anyway about that because the it, it is relevant the amount of money. It was not just the 20 million that went to Jordy, but there was a million that went to his father, and I think some amount of money that went to his mother and. And then there was the all of the fees that went to the attorneys, which had to have been at least five to ten million dollars. I mean, it was a huge amount of money. There's no way an insurance company would have done that. With the prosecution's case feeling thin, District Attorney Tom Snedden made a motion to open a new line of testimony, calling witnesses from Jackson's past. He argued for what's called a 1108. All right, tell me what an 1108 is. 1108 is a code. It's it's called also called prior bad acts, and it's not uncommon for prosecutors to bring it up, nor is it uncommon for defense attorneys to argue against it. It's basically allowing past actions of a defendant to be testified to, even if those claims have not been proven in court. The theory is that previous allegations of child molestation, for instance, might help the jury evaluate the allegations in the present case. Right. Okay, I see. I get it. And of course, Mesereau fought this motion hard because he knew there would be a bunch of third-party characters from the Jordan Chandler case coming in to testify from the 90s. Right. But also, if that was going to happen, he must have known that at least some of these people, if I'm if I'm remembering it correctly, were selling the like all their stories to the tabloids. Is that oh, right? Exactly. Right. So it could backfire in that they look end up looking slimy, and then it ends up making the prosecution look like they're overreaching, and they had a you know a weak case to begin with. Right. Like here's more people that make it look like Michael Jackson is the victim of these grifters and con artists. And, yeah. Yeah. So I guess it could go either way at this point. It could totally go either way. So what did the judge rule? 
And now to another big story we're following for you. What court watchers are describing as a major win for lawyers prosecuting pop star Michael Jackson and a sharp turn for his child molestation trial. MSNBC's Allison Stewart speaks here. A judge says evidence from prior sexual molestation allegations against the singer will be allowed in his current trial. A moment later in the news package, attorney Ann Bremner commented on the ruling by Judge Melville. The trial here will have many trial after many trial as to other offenses. It'll be significantly longer, but it's significantly different than what we had last week or in the beginning of this trial up until last Friday. This is now a trial about pattern evidence, about propensity, and once a pedophile, always a pedophile. Telephone Stories is presented by Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio. It's written and produced by me, Brandon Ogborn, and produced by Omar Crook. Our show is edited and mixed by Ross Morgan. Our story editor is Jim Newton, with research and fact-checking by Noni Yates. Jessica Gramulia is our music supervisor. Seth Weiss is our recording engineer. Our associate producer is Tess Ryan and production assistance comes from Namir Kalik. John Ahern composed all of our original music, and our cover art is by Jacob Sanders. If you have questions or comments on the show, or want to shower us with praise, email feedback at telephonestoriespod.com. So sorry, Ross. We're just rolling here, buddy. You know what, Ross? I'm not sorry. <sighs> you know, you can be so grouchy. Oh, oh.